You're listening to DraftKings Network. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Are you a hunter or an outdoor enthusiast? Take your love for firearms to the next level with Goat Guns. Our miniatures are an ideal addition to your hunting gear or cabin decor. Each model is meticulously crafted, capturing the essence of legendary firearms. Celebrate your passion for the outdoors by displaying these stunning pieces. With Goat Guns, you can showcase your love for hunting and firearms in a unique and artistic way. Explore our collection now and embrace your outdoor spirit at GoatGuns.com. Guys, I am so glad that Mario Chalmers is back in my life. Did he ever leave? (laughs) I love Rio. I love him so much. He's got to be top five all irrational confidence guy in the league, right? When you hit a clutch shot, that propels your team to win a national championship. Is it irrational? I feel like that's going to make you confident for the rest of your career. This is a guy who is all state Alaska. Who is he competing with in all state Alaska? Carlos, Carlos Boozer's family, Trajan Langdon, all the Alaskans. Come on, man. All ages just play against each other because they don't have enough to fill out a full league. It's all Alaska ever. <laughs> Keep doubting him, Maze. He went from Alaska to winning the NCAA championship against Derrick Rose in Memphis, sent it in overtime with the shot. And then the NBA GM's like, nah, don't believe this kid. Second round pick. Miami Heat bring him in, sits on the bench watching Mike Bibby brick shot after shot. Doesn't get his shot in the finals until it's too late. And then, oh, people might forget. Mario Chalmers called LeBron a bitch. No, no, no. He did not say that. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. He did not call him a bitch. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow. You know what? I need to take that back. Take it to the tape. You know, I felt like he was complaining too much about what was going on. I'm like, yo, you're the, you're the star player of the team. Like, stop acting like a bitch and let's just play basketball. And anybody that knows LeBron knows that word bitch he doesn't like. And that'll get him going no matter where he at any time of the day. If you want to get in Bron's head, just say the word bitch. See? He didn't call him a bitch. He said he merely was exhibiting the behaviors of a bitch. Two completely different things, guys. Come on. He had this blow up with LeBron December of 2013 after they won two titles. They're still going at it. Rio is the little brother to the big three. It was D-Wade, Chris Bosh, LeBron James, and there was Mario. Just irrational confidence. This guy... Maybe it's not irrational, but he said he was a top 10 point guard in the NBA when he was averaging like eight points a game. It was amazing. Had Ish Smith? <laughs> yeah, regrettably. I'm sitting there watching March Madness and pulling up Twitter, and there he is, Mario Chalmers on the In Shambles or Playmaker podcast. Here he is. Nobody fears Bron. Nobody's like, damn, I gotta go play this Bron tonight. Nobody said that. I don't know why. Right. Because I've seen people be scared when they actually line up to them, but they're not scared thinking about that match. Right. You hear anybody from that era talk about going against Jordan, there's a fear. Right. So when you have people that fear a player, and that's telling you something different already. Like, Jordan's just that guy. Like, everything was, I want to be like Mike. Right. Now, when he says nobody, he's talking exclusively about himself. 
he doesn't fear LeBron. So obviously nobody else should. I think it's interesting to note that when he said that about LeBron, LeBron apologized afterwards for acting like a bitch. <laughs> LeBron did say, I love Mario Chalmers like a blood brother. I was wrong and apologized to him. We good and we'll always be good. I ride with him any and every day. That's what LeBron said. Tweeted that out in 2013. So I don't know after he says that no one fears LeBron like they did Michael Jordan. I don't know if they're still blood brothers. I always get confused when people say nobody fears LeBron. What does that mean? Do they think that when guys were going to play Jordan in the 90s, they were like, <laughs> like chomping on their fingernails, like, oh, I'm so terrible. Oh, is that what they think is happening? What was that? <laughs> Does they wave their <laughs> yeah. hands because things are hot? Now, what is this impression? I mean, <laughs> here we go with this again. This is someone who's afraid. Who's acting afraid. Oh, they fear Jordan. Oh, oh. I don't know, man. Ask Toronto if they fear LeBron. Yeah. Ask Atlanta. In three series against LeBron, they didn't win a single game. 12 and 0 LeBron is against Atlanta lifetime. And one of those years, they had the best record in the conference. They won 64 games and had four all-stars. Charlotte in the postseason against LeBron, 0 and 4. Philly, 1 and 4. Washington, 4 and 12. Milwaukee, oh. God bless Brandon Jennings, 0-4. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say being brave against LeBron hasn't really worked for a whole lot of teams either or players either, so I don't know. <laughs> Except Mario Chalmers. Mario Chalmers is not afraid of him. He stepped to LeBron, and then LeBron apologized to him. That's what's happening here. He's anointed. He's got some sort of real estate that few people in the NBA have. And you know who put a stamp on that, Tom? Who's that? President Barack Obama. With that, I think we should take a picture, uh, but we should make it quick uh, before one of these guys starts yelling at Mario. I mean, sometimes it's just a bad pass, guys. It's not Mario's fault. Yeah. <laughs> I got your back, man. He's got the President of the United States. With that, uh, I think we should take a picture, uh, but we should do it quick before one of these guys starts yelling at Mario. I got your back, Mario. The first one I did when we weren't recording was a lot better. Ah. You got to go back to the DeLorean. No, I can't. It's gone? I can't because I wasn't recording, Tom. That's the point. Now, Governor Romney's fine with that. He, he's okay with me not recording, uh, doing the impression. With that, I think we should take a picture uh, before one of these guys starts yelling at Mario. Wait, Barack, do you think people feared Jordan? Now, uh, Tom, uh, I'm from Hawaii, but I consider myself to be a native son of the Chi-Town. And uh, I can tell you right now, nobody uh, inspired fear quite as much as Mitch McConnell. But second on that list is Michael Jordan. My assignment, uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. Now you've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati.
I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> my eyes, sir. You've never used them before. We are the basketball of This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm being joined by the five-star Illuminati generals, Amin Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Fellas. I'm back. Yeah. Welcome back, Amin. How about that? I forgot that I wasn't even on the episode last week. You guys have to remind me. Four-star general. <laughs> then welcome back. I'm like, from what? What do you mean? I did this podcast, didn't I? Did we go to war? Did I miss it? You were on assignment. I was on assignment. Can't wait to hear what you collected. Collected a haircut. <laughs> but that's not what we're here for. Tell them what we're here for, Tom. We're here for the truth. Ah, yes. Chris Herring from Sports Illustrated, truth teller. We're going to talk about John ja Morant and that sit down with Jalen Rose, the statements, all of that conversation. Also, we're going to talk about Kendrick Perkins and the racialization of the MVP vote. But first... are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El-Hassan. I am ready for the alien abduction that's about to happen here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Aliens in Charlotte? Are you talking about that weather balloon a few weeks back, Tom? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the China balloon. Maybe it was aliens. I mean, they're technically illegal aliens. Hmm. Are you doing your Mitch McConnell impression now <laughs> since you did Obama in the intro? Turtle, turtle, turtle. <laughs> That's what I thought of when the ESPN report last week, Michael Jordan is selling his stake in the Charlotte Hornets. No, say it ain't so. Now, why would he do that, Tom? Well, it's interesting timing because in a couple months, we're going to have the draft lottery in which the biggest prospect since LeBron James... Maybe people don't fear Victor Wembanyama as much as LeBron James, but Michael Jordan has decided or is deciding serious talks to sell the Hornets to a group led by Gabe Plotkin and Rick Schnall. Hmm. Interesting timing here because I seem to remember a recent huge prospect, Anthony Davis, going to the New Orleans Hornets draft lottery night. New Orleans got... The winning ticket for the Anthony Davis sweepstakes. Why is that interesting? I mean, it's interesting because I believe at the time the Hornets had just been sold to the Benson family. If you remember, George Shin owned the Hornets in Charlotte, moved them to New Orleans, then decided he could not continue to own the team, was losing too much money. Tried to sell, couldn't find a seller. So the team literally went into a trust where the NBA became the de facto governor for the New Orleans Hornets while they continued to search for a buyer. The Benson family, who owned the New Orleans Saints, stepped in and said, we'll buy it. And conveniently, the number one overall pick went to New Orleans in the lottery. Charlotte, at the time... 7-59 and 59 with a win percentage of 106. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. They won 10% of the games. They lost 90% of their games. That is 
the worst team in NBA history by the numbers. Meanwhile, New Orleans had the third worst record, winning 21 games, which is good for 31-8 win percentage. So 32%. They won a third of their games, roughly, a little less than the third. Everyone thought Charlotte was going to get it because they had the most ping pong balls. But New Orleans had a 13.7% chance, and lo and behold, look who's talking now. So, I mean, the Bobcats had the worst record, 7-59. and 59, In NBA history. And they still only had a 25% chance at winning the Anthony Davis sweepstakes, and they ended up getting... The second overall pick, which has got to be a great player, too. I mean, think of all the drafts where you have John Morant was the second overall pick, Kevin Durant was the second overall pick. Who was the second overall pick that Charlotte ended up with, Tom? Michael Kidd Gilchrist. Yeah! Ah. His teammate! Hey, they're on the same team in Kentucky! Who's to say the success at Kentucky was all AD, right? Maybe, maybe there's a lot of MKG with his sideways shooting form. Looks like he's in a batting cage. The New York Times actually interviewed David Stern after the New Orleans franchise magically wins the lottery to get Anthony Davis, recounting a conversation with Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana. Oh, my God. That's a blast from the past. Stern said, quote, I said, can't we close this deal before the lottery just against the possibility that this team will win it? But we ultimately decided that it didn't matter because, you know, if New Orleans comes up first, it'll be because we own it and we made a deal. If the Nets come up first, it's because of Brooklyn. And if it's Charlotte, it's because of Michael Jordan. So the New York Times continues to write, speaking of Jordan, who fronts the Wobegon Bobcats franchise that had the best statistical chance of winning the lottery, he was a no-show. Didn't show up. Hmm. There are no mistakes, no coincidences. And then Stern says, go ahead and say it, conspiracy theory. Stern said with a plaintive shrug. It's a conspiracy. I love it. I miss him, man. He's just daring you to call it a conspiracy theory at that point. So what? Who cares? How about that? Michael didn't go to that one, huh? You think that was part of it? That's an interesting wrinkle, right? A skeptic might say, oh, because Michael Jordan doesn't want to be affiliated with failure. You own the Charlotte NBA team, my man. With the worst record in NBA history that you just brought up. It's a little too late. Part and parcel. (laughs) Ted Leonsis was there. The Bensons were there. Ted Leonsis, who, by the way, a decade earlier, bought the team from A. Poland, who had squeezed Michael Jordan out of returning the ownership after he returned to play for two seasons in a Wizards uniform. You know, a lot of people don't know that story, Tom. Yeah. A lot of people just think Michael Jordan came back to play for the Wizards and don't remember he was a part owner and he was the head of basketball ops for Washington. And then he made the decision that I need to sign the best player I know. So he signed himself. But because of the NBA constitution, you're not allowed to coach or GM the team and play at the same time. You certainly aren't able to be an owner and a player at the same time. So he had to divest his share back to A. Poland, who was supposed to just hold on to it until he was done playing. He would come back, assume his ownership, and assume his mantle as president of basketball ops. Well, that didn't happen because A. Poland said, ah, second thought, I'm not so sure about this. So he was squeezed out until he came back in. When Robert Johnson, owner of the Charlotte Bobcats, decided, I don't want to own this shit anymore. It's too expensive. I'm losing money, and this business isn't quite working, which all brings us back full circle to why the Hornets were in New Orleans in the first place, because George Shin, the then owner of the Charlotte Hornets, moved the team to New Orleans because he wanted a new arena, and Charlotte wouldn't give it to him. And we went to New Orleans. He realized, I can't make this business work. I don't want to do this. I'm losing too much money. All of this paints a very weird, different picture 
from the NBA that we live in today, where owning a team is an incredibly lucrative venture. And yet, here is Michael Jordan saying, I don't own this anymore. I'm losing too much money. This is too expensive for me. Here, somebody else take it. Michael's probably looking at Matt Ishbia, nearly $4 billion for the Phoenix Suns. Mark Lazary, the deal in Milwaukee selling to the Cleveland Browns owner. It was a matter of time, but I was curious to see if Michael was going to wait until the Victor Wembanyama draft lottery happened before he decided to sell the team. But maybe he knows something. Does Michael Jordan know a little bit of inside info here? I don't know. The timing is really weird, but USA Today did a poll right after that Anthony Davis lottery asking if people thought the lottery was fixed. And 57% of the people said yes. Only 17% said no, while 27% replied, don't know, but I could believe it. Nah, that's my target (laughs) demo right there. (laughs) I don't know, but uh, twist my arm. So 83% of the people back then thought the draft lottery was fixed or maybe fixed, which over the years we've talked about on this show, I don't know how much has been erased some of that skepticism, that cynicism. But now Michael Jordan is selling the team right before the Wembenyama sweepstakes. If he leaves and they win the lottery, I'm going to feel bad for Michael Jordan. There's probably a lot of money that he's going to sell for, but why now? Why not wait to see if you get Victor Wembenyama? Maybe we think about this the wrong way, guys. Maybe Michael's already gotten the word just like he got the word last time. Hey, you're not getting it. Well, I'm not showing up to the lottery. Mm. That's what happened a decade ago. Maybe that's what's happening right now. He already got the word. Yo, we already said Wembenyama's going to San Antonio. Pop put in the call, so sorry. So Mike is like, well, what the hell with this then? Why am I going to hold on to this thing? I'm going to need to sell now. You know who doesn't fear Michael Jordan? Adam Silver. Oh, the league. The league doesn't fear him. Take that. But when LeBron's owner, they're going to give him that number one pick real quick. So you're saying that this lottery isn't a conspiracy. It's acting like a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy acting like it's not a conspiracy. Throw off the scent. So you're saying it's a red herring, I mean. But what's not a red herring is our guest, our truth teller today, Chris Herring, who joined us to share... His thoughts on the John Morant situation and the MVP race after the break. Chris Herring from Sports Illustrated. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Really excited to sit down here with my guy, Chris Herring from Sports Illustrated. He's got a book, Blood in the Garden. It is an amazing look at the 90s 
New York Knicks. Amin has very special feelings about those teams. I got special feelings about that book, man. You know, that book has passed a lot of hands. I'm sorry, Chris. I probably cost you some sales because... <laughs> man, come on, dude. All of my family members, <laughs> all everyone read this book or whatever. And my favorite thing, I want to give a shout out to my buddy Elite, who is a producer for Dreamville. One of the biggest Knicks fans I know and was one of your biggest fans, Chris. Until he read the book and he was upset. And I said, why are you upset? He's upset. He was upset. He's like, he's giving away too much stuff. Why is he telling <laughs> us? I said, Elite, wouldn't you want to know about the behind the scenes stuff of your favorite teams and your favorite franchise? He said, no, nah, no, nah, man. Some things are better left unsaid. <laughs> he was upset that you were too expository with your writing. Oh, man. I don't really know what to say to that. I'm sorry. You're too good at this whole journalism thing, Chris. He shattered his childhood, man. He's like, oh, they were fighting about stuff like that. Yeah. I think he had like a very idealized vision of what those Knicks 90s teams were. You know, I said, never meet your idols or whatever. You made him meet his idols. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, that's what that sounds like. <laughs> it was also a team with Anthony Mason on, so I don't really know what he expected. <laughs> that was his favorite player. There it is. There's your answer. Fair. Fair. I will say to him, seriously, jokingly, however you want to put it, I've gotten probably more feedback from like his people than anybody about the book. Uh -huh. Some of the women he was with, his best friends and stuff that were really willing to take me behind the curtain, his college roommates. And they were appreciative that I was writing a book because they said so many people came up to us about stories they wanted to write and articles and long form stories. And it's like we knew the nuance of him wouldn't be captured that way. And so now, particularly after he's gone, someone that can do it in a way where it's not just he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, not just salacious stories. He was a real person. He was a complicated person. And so having the runway to do that in a book was helpful. But also I wanted to pay real close attention to make sure I got the stuff right with that. And there was stuff everybody asked, did you get the stuff on whether he was the guy from the Biggie song story to tell? And I asked the question, but... If I couldn't get a definitive, definitive, definitive answer, I'm not going to just throw something in there half-heartedly. Everything else I'm going by the book as far as how I have this. So there's salacious stuff in there, but anything that was there, you could bet your bottom dollar that it happened. I didn't just want there to be headlines coming from the book and that be it and no one get the context of it. But thank you for passing the book around and putting people onto it. I really appreciate that. They loved it, man. Everybody loved it, except for Elite. His childhood was destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> when can we expect Bing Bong in the garden? The rise of the 2020s New York Knicks led by Jalen Brunson. At the rate I wrote the 90s book, probably like 2050, <laughs> 20 or 30 years after it happened, or with the media policies that they've gotten everything there, probably much later than that. Yeah, you'd like to be able to go back inside the garden. I would imagine. <laughs> right, right, right. So you're a capital J journalist asking the hard questions, but also taking the time to give the reader an inside access to then whether it's the Knicks or anything in the NBA. You did an excellent job marrying not just the numbers side of things, because you and I, Chris, we kind of came up in the writing world using numbers or data to help inform us and the readers about what's really going on in the league. And you do that better than anybody. You're really excellent at the number side of things, but your recent column about Ja Morant, I thought was a really important column because I don't think this conversation was happening too much in the media circles. And I think there's a lot of reasons why, but 
What was the genesis of your John Morant column that you had at Sports Illustrated where you expressed a little bit of reservation about John Morant invoking mental health as part of an explanation for his actions? Also talking about Josh Primo, the former San Antonio Spurs guard who did a lot of the same in his situation with the psychologist. So Chris, what was the start of that story? You're probably sitting home watching the conversation happen on Twitter. And then you're like, you know what? I got to actually write this. Well, first of all, thank you for everything you said. I'm a huge fan of your work, a means work. And you're right. We did kind of come up sort of around the same time as far as the the number stuff. And so I think people are always kind of surprised when I write something that's not rooted in that. But with the column, I think the original genesis of it was like anything. Editors coming to you being like, can you write something on the gun stuff? You know, for me, and I feel like I'm doing this more and more often. I don't think it's because of the book success or anything. I think it's just wanting to try to call my shots a little bit more and wanting to be patient, seeing how stuff unfolds. Because let's be honest, part of the reason I did that column was that Jaws had like three or four different things come up in the last year, eight months, six months, a lot of them involving or somehow being alleged that there was a gun involved. So if this had been a standalone thing, maybe it would have been viewed differently. Maybe it would have been harsher because it would have been like, wow, this came out of nowhere. What the hell? But specifically with this, it was like, okay, now this guy put up a video of himself waving what looks like a gun around the league's investigating it. And because of that, it's weird because it gave like an official entry for a lot of people that even if they hadn't written about the stuff before, now they had a reason to, but there still wasn't a conclusion to it. So it's like, well, what do you want me to write? When he put out the statement, I felt like I was parsing that very closely. And not just that I read it, but I was reading people's responses to it, fans' responses to it, employees that work for the Grizzlies' responses to it. Yes. For me, I read it differently. And I think a lot of people did. I had a lot of feedback from that column where, to me, it didn't quite do what Josh Primo's statement did, but it was close as far as the idea of saying, you know, I'm going to take time away to get help that I need. You know, let's be really honest and clear about this. There's nothing wrong with getting help. I see a therapist. People in my family see therapists. I've seen couples counselor with my now fiance in the run up to us getting engaged. Mental health is a wonderful thing to take time for. I think everybody should do it that has the means to, even if you don't have the means to, explore the ways in which you might be able to, because I think it's life changing for people. It has been for me. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is the idea of all these other incidents that happened before this that were being looked at, that were being investigated, that the league had an eye on, that all of a sudden, when it's very clear that there's going to be a suspension handed down or some sort of punishment handed down, that then you invoke this and it makes it seem like it's a cover for what you just got in trouble for. And to add on to that, the idea that he went to a facility for help, spent the week, comes out like, I'm better again. It reminds me of when Paul George in the bubble wasn't playing well in the playoffs. And he said, I'm going through a tough period. And then he had a good game. He was like, I'm healed again. I said, well, no. That's not how it works. You didn't have a bad game because you were depressed. You were depressed because you had a bad game. Not to say that that feeling of feeling low is an easy feeling or whatever, but we can't masquerade things that are part of what's happening in your life as symptoms of something else when it's really the other way around. Another example of this would be where Ben Simmons basically evoked anxiety and mental 
health stress as to why he wasn't coming back for Philly. And I said, but hold on, you're complicit in that. I don't doubt it's stressful to come back to Philly to play for the Sixers after what happened. Sure, it's stressful, but you're complicit in a lot of why that situation was stressful. You did things. And what I fear is the idea that there can be no accountability. When I was a kid, a big thing people used to say was, oh, the devil made me do it. Why'd you break the vase, Johnny? The devil made me do it. <laughs> it's a very 20th century thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> the insinuation is like, ah, it wasn't me. It was some other outside force that did this. So there's that, the idea that I have no accountability for my actions that led me to this real-life stressful mental health anguish place. The other thing is the blanket immunity. Hmm. If I invoke mental health, nobody can ask me nothing. Hmm. How dare you, you insensitive bastard. That's the shield that Chris wrote about, yeah. Throw that out there. Like, now we good, right? Now we're safe, you know? It's like playing tag and you're on home base. Yeah. I'll be real with you. I, I want to address part of what you said. I had questions and I think a lot of us wondered a little bit about the Ben Simmons stuff. I made a point not to include that in the column just because I do think that that one was such an ongoing thing for such a long time. Even if Ben Simmons brought some of the stuff on himself, even if he was in denial about certain things, I thought your own Weitzman wrote a really good column about him. I don't think it touched on mental health that I can remember, mm -hmm. but just about the number of times that people egged him on and pushed him. Please take a three-point shot. Please, please work on your jump shot. Please do this. And that he had advisors around him that were saying like, he's good. He's a superstar. And Ben saying, if I'm doing what's best for the team, I'm not a good shooter. So if I'm making plays for other people, that's better. Even if Brett Brown is telling me to take threes. So I could see how some things about that create a really stressful environment. He was talked about in a way, even if it was his failings on the court of not dunking or taking a layup in a key moment, the way that Embiid and the way that Doc talked about him, granted, in response to questions about it, were unusually right out at the forefront, like in front of everybody at a really high stress time. Mm -hmm. That's not to say Ben handled stuff perfectly, that he didn't bring some stress or anxiety on himself. I'm sure he did. And the way that some of that stuff was handled, I'm sure he would probably go back and do certain things differently. With this specifically, I think, Ja, part of what bothered me so much was that the stuff that he's been accused of in some cases, if that stuff happened, they're actually victims there. Yep. I just don't feel good about the idea of people being like, man, I hope Ja takes the time he needs to get better and that he's good and praying for him. That's fine to do that. On its own, it's fine to do that. But to do it, if it's to give yourself immunity or to make it so that people aren't allowed to ask other questions about those things where there have been victims or possible victims, it's erasure and it just feels ugly to me. And my editors were very particular about this when I wrote the column. They didn't even initially want me to mention the Josh Primo example in my column because they're like, those are two different things. Well, yeah, they're two different things. I understand that. The Spurs have already settled a lawsuit stemming from that, which happened very quickly. And quite frankly, I don't think there was really enough conversation around it league-wide because Josh Primo was not a star and was a young player whose career had barely even started. But there were elements of that that it was some of the same stuff Deshaun Watson essentially was being looked at for. Yeah, and there's a lawsuit. There's a lawsuit involved with Deshaun Watson and with yes. Josh Primo, and there were legal actions filing police reports with Ja Morant. Yes. So, okay, now this is a story, and, and I watched the Jalen Rose interview, and a lot of it was framing Ja as a victim, was like, 
when you were just waiting around for Adam Silver's suspension? What was that like sitting there? At one point, Jalen was like, what would you like to say to all the naysayers criticizing you for your gang affiliation, conjuring up that you're part of a gang and the framing of using the word naysayers? The other one he used a lot was people trying to. Yes. People try to make this out. How did you feel about people trying to make this out as something? You need to get rid of people in your inner circle or whatever it is or change the people who you move with. And to your point, Chris, there are victims involved in these things. And brandishing a gun and showing a gun on an IG live is one thing. But it's another when John Morant in the sit down with Jalen Rose is apologizing for putting himself in that situation. He's not apologizing for showing a gun. He doesn't say I shouldn't have shown the gun. He doesn't say that at all. It was I have trouble dealing with stress and I'm paraphrasing here and I need to do better, make better decisions about dealing with that stress and the anxiety I was escaping by putting on it on IG live. And I wanted freedom to do that. And then Jalen kept it moving, moved on to the next question. There was no discussion about, did you think it was inappropriate to put out the gun in the video? Whose gun was it? was not answered in that video. It wasn't my gun. There was no follow-up to that question. <laughs> it was, it wasn't my gun, and I shouldn't have been in that situation. Chris, absent the directive of the commissioner in the league to, hey, you have to do a sit-down with a league partner to talk about this, was there any advantage or benefit for Ja doing this? I'll be real with you. There's a part of me that would wonder whether the league even asked him to do that. You know, I'm not a PR director with the league or anything like that. To me, honestly... The report Woj put out about Jaw having met with the commissioner came out and then like an hour or two later, we were looking at images that ESPN was putting out of Jaw having been with Jalen. Yeah, Jalen addressed it in the thing. He was like, you had your meeting with Adam Silver this morning and now you're here. And not just that, you know, I understand that the timeline of when this stuff gets reported and how it's reported in a tweet or, or what have you. It was like later in the week that Tim McMahon and Woj had reported that he was in counseling or that he'd been to Florida for counseling or whatever it was that he had. That didn't come out until Wednesday or Thursday. And then the interview came out Friday. So people were like, yo, he did like one day of counseling, which I don't think that's what Woj was saying. I think he had been there for the better part of a week. Yeah. But it looked to a lot of people that weren't noticing the timeline of when he started the counseling. It was like a day or two. And that's where I don't know who it served well to have him do a sit down that quickly about what he learned or what he took from this or what he was going to do a better job of. You could also just move very quietly. You could also just do a press conference after your first game back. I didn't see a need to do that. I didn't understand what it really accomplished. Also, to your point, there weren't a whole lot of answers either, which of course there weren't going to be. Whether it was Jalen or, you know, we were joking offline, Barbara Walters or anybody else. God rest her soul. R.I.P. The goat. We want that, but as a fan, like, is anybody really asking for that that quickly? If he's getting help, Let him get his help and let him come back when people deem him okay to come back. Chris, in the sit down with Jalen, there was no mention of Ja continuing treatment or therapy for mental health issues. It seemed as if he just needed the time away. He got the counseling. Got my prescription. I did my Z-pack or whatever, and I'm fine. What? What's the big deal, Tom? Put a Band-Aid on the brain. Good to go. (laughs) With the knowledge that there was no mention of like continuing therapy or, hey, this is a long road that I have to address this. 
and this isn't going to be fixed overnight. None of that discussion. Can we look back on this situation in Ja and say, you know what? He did take this seriously. He did go to counseling and maybe he did fix this. Are we able to just say he did handle this in the best way possible or did invoking that publicly undermine everything that happens here? Because if he's not continuing this, it just seems like a quick bandaid on the whole situation. It's going to be a weird thing just because I guess the answer is we'll see, but we won't see it if there's no further issues, which would be great. There's also the very real thing, and this is part of why I think it bothered me that it was invoked the way it was a couple of weeks ago. People also can struggle on and off. It's certainly not a quick fix, You hope that over time that, you know, if he needs help with handling stress and anxiety, that you do the things that help you to do that. It's also possible that you can fall into a dark place or what have you. But I think the big takeaway here is that even if and when that happens, it doesn't become an excuse. A lot of people deal with mental health problems. A lot of people deal with stress, anxiety. I'm not saying that having tons of money We've heard more money, more problems like those can worsen those things. It it can put other people that want to be a part of your circle. It can make it easier for you to assume that everything you do is smart and right. It will make people less reluctant to say no to you or to tell you not to do something, which is what a lot of people have raised here. I think Jalen included. I don't want to necessarily say that, like, if he messes up again or if there's something else again, I don't want to blame it on any one thing. But it's part of why it bothered me the way it came up this time with regards to his mental health is that people can have slippage with anything. But again, all these other alleged transgressions and everything else, it wasn't mentioned. And actually, if anything, which I mentioned in the column, Taylor Rooks had interviewed him before. Mm-hmm. And she was just kind of asking a lot of people that had played in the bubble, what was that like for you? You know, it was difficult for me. What was it like for you? And Job made a point of saying that he always tries to kind of look at the bright side of things that sometimes he thinks about things, but doesn't talk them out. Hadn't really gone to therapy because he didn't trust it. Like I said, I don't want to downplay the idea that he was dealing with things. But to me, it's really ugly to use that as a crutch, an excuse, a cover for anything, particularly after you realize that you're going to get hit with ramifications from something that you just did. Not to mention something that we would have never known about had he not posted it on Instagram. I hope that there are no more issues with it just because I'm rooting for the guy. It's very fun to watch play basketball. A lot of kids look up to him. He has a lot of money on the table. I don't want to see anybody in life blow an opportunity like that. Also, I would hope that all the people that are there to embrace him now, if there's a mistake later, are doing that instead of pointing, laughing, joking about it. It could have real ramifications just based on the allegations that were there before this. Chris, what's an appropriate way to resist, reject, or just poke at the mental health card when it's played. You probably won't see me do it. There probably is a fun way to do it. Someone that's funnier than me. I didn't mean in a funny way. I meant like in this case, we are saying, well, hold on, man. Yeah. What's the appropriate way to do that? Because I feel like I do it, but a very inappropriate way. I want to be better. See, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I I want to be better. (laughs) I want to do it in a way where people take it seriously, but also not be offensive to people who are feeling triggering thoughts. When I tweeted the story out, I can't remember the last time I got so many responses from people so quickly about like, yo, I'm so glad someone wrote this because I was thinking it, I was feeling it. One person told me he was a suicide survivor. And this sort of stuff makes me want to throw the league away to some extent, because 
who doesn't love watching John Morant play basketball? And who doesn't love now that more people feel like they can speak about their own stuff because of the work that DeMar DeRozan has done and Kevin Love has done? It undermines that stuff when you're only hearing about the help they need when they're in trouble for something. No one's doubting that Ja has very real stuff that he deals with or hasn't dealt with, which would be a problem too. But it comes across really flimsy when you're only invoking it when you've got a suspension coming. No one wants to see it used as a shield because people know that it's a real thing. And also, it's not appropriate to level it with criminality because then people that talk about their mental health, if the only image of mental health stuff that people have is jaw waving around a gun, other people are going to be reluctant to say that they've got mental health stuff because they're going to be looked at as criminals. And that's been a problem with it for a long time and why for the last few years has been such a groundbreaking thing. So like I said, I know that there are smarter people out there that probably have Netflix specials that can talk about this stuff more seamlessly, but I don't know what that is. I just know for now, at least in this case, it made me really uncomfortable when I read his comments. I hadn't realized, Chris, watching March Madness and the tournament, every other commercial is this Powerade commercial of a kid training at a public park, shooting hoops. And he's jumping up and down on a tire training and it's talking about the journey starts now or the grind. Yeah. That's the jaw commercial. Mm. That was supposed to be jaw. That's crazy. He was a week into his deal, right? With Powerade. Jaw tweeted it out. There was like a 90 second spot of that B-roll of a kid training at a basketball court. That was actually the actor portraying jaw. Wow. And there was a much longer story involving Ja. The journey starts back when, and thank you, Powerade, 50% more electrolytes. And so the stakes of what happened when it comes to the money and the dollars and the actual partners in this, Powerade was going to put Ja Morant on every TV in America for like two weeks straight. And they couldn't get rid of the ads, so they had to take out the Joss stuff. Did you know that, by the way? Did you put two and two together on that? No. There were two things I saw the week that this happened. Nate Duncan had a tweet ready to roll as soon as this stuff happened about the all-NBA team and how Joss will likely miss out on the Supermax. I imagine he will. I looked at it, and I was like, man, the timing. But also, it's real. It's very real stuff. It's more money than we'll ever see, really, when you're talking about that his deal would have been worth an additional $39 million or whatever it was. I had heard that he'd gotten the power rate thing, but I didn't realize it was within that same two-week window that they'd signed him on. Not to mention, he just slid in and took the Kyrie shoe deal, more or less. Yep. Maybe not the same deal, but as an endorser. That slot. All we need is for someone that's marketable who's not going to fumble the bag because they're oblivious to what they're doing. So it's Nike's fault, is what you're saying, Chris. <laughs> We're passing the baton from Kyrie to Ja. I mean, Nike was hungry to find somebody. And again, Ja had stuff that had come up in the media a few times now, but none of it had really stuck, if you can really use that word. It was all stuff that was looked into and concerning, quite frankly. The thing with the pacers and the laser that people were alleging was pointed in their direction from Ja's car, or the car that he was in. The one with the kid, the high schooler that was playing pickup with them and said that Ja punched him and then Ja's guys punched him and then Ja came out of the house as the kid was going back to the car and had a gun in his waistband with his hand on the gun. Again, allegations, no evidence to support it necessarily, but stuff that was investigated. And these are not the sorts of storylines you even want. None of those had stuck, though. And so now that was what was so stunning about the video is just like, 
no one's making you do this. No one would have seen it. No one would have known. Jalen asked him, whose gun was that? And he said, it wasn't mine. It's fortunate that there was no proof to really tie that it was his to it because it might have been even more serious as far as whether Colorado as a state or a locality had been able to do something about it, whether he'd brought a gun on the plane. So he's fortunate from that standpoint. If it had been his or anything like that, there had been proof and it just wasn't found. But again, as a basketball fan, we want to see the guy play basketball. It's frustrating to have to talk about anything that's not that. But in this case, you have to talk about the stuff that's not that because I feel like the thing that was disappointing about this is it seemed to give more validity to the stuff that people have accused him of. When he's talking about guns constantly, there was also the tweet, which I know were lyrics. (laughs) A lot of people laughed it off, but there are a lot of gun conversations coming up around John. It's not a comfortable thing. There were actual things that weren't addressed in that interview. Like, for example, There was that clip of Ja celebrating on the sideline. So one of his teammates does something amazing. And then Ja Morant is miming a shooting. Pow, pow, pow. Right after the story came out from Sam Amick and Shams Charanian and The Athletic detailing that there was an altercation where allegedly a Indiana Pacers staffer had a laser pointer directed at them in a threatening manner. Then one of his friends was banned by the league from attending Memphis Grizzlies games at the arena, there are things in this story that you can't say was a lie. One of the questions I was hoping was asked is, how did you feel about your inner circle when Adam Silver in the league suspended or banned one of your friends? Did you consider that a wake-up call? That wasn't addressed. There were things that Ja has done that can't be construed as a media fabrication that wasn't really addressed in the interview. And it makes me wonder, what were the terms of that interview? Speaking from experience, I have not done a sit-down in a crisis like that with an athlete. Me neither. So... I don't know the terms by which you get the agreement to do an interview. I don't know the timing of it all. I know that's not easy to do. Jalen has gone to school and studied journalism. He has mentioned that on Twitter is if you are coming at me and criticizing me for the interview, I've gone to school for this. Like I've trained this. I've been in the media for 20 years. But at the end of the interview, they're dapping up and Jalen Rose is telling him, I'm rooting for you. You guys are going to win the championship. Now that I've seen you face to face and addressing this in front of a camera, That has given me every reason to believe you guys are going to win the West. And he says, let's get it. The funniest thing is that he didn't need to say any of that on camera. (laughs) He could have said all that rah-rah shit to, hey, man, I really believe in you, da-da-da-da, and then sit down and just have a regular interview. To me, it's almost more telling the fact that you do it as part of the interview more than the fact that you did it at all. The timing is curious. Chris, kind of to Tom's point. What's one question you wish Jalen would have asked? I mean, I'll be real with you. And you raised this last week. I mean, likelihood that he answers it are probably really, really, really slim. I think they would have to be. When he asked whose gun was it? And he said, it wasn't my gun. Okay. Whose gun was it? It wasn't yours. I understand. (laughs) I mean, that's a place to start. If that's someone that he's rolling with all the time or around all the time, when you talk about limiting access to people at the arena and you talk about fixes that you can make really quickly like that might be one of them is like if it wasn't your gun okay whoever it was i think it goes without saying that we probably weren't going to get clear cut answers about like what sort of counseling he was getting what sort of help he was getting i know that was a question a lot of people had many of us assume it's one thing people have said is it drinking is that one of the ways he handles his stress so is he getting help for that is it Mental health specifically, we're not obligated to an answer. We're not owed an answer necessarily, but there's all sorts of stuff. And I think as much as we talk about the idea of 
needing to handle things better and needing to be smarter about where you put yourself. There was one question that was asked too about the one allegation that we hadn't talked about was the idea that Ja, his mother called him one time. She was having an issue at a mall or a shoe store or something like that. And Ja not only came up there, but rolled up with nine or 10 of his boys. That sounds a certain way. It probably looks a certain way and feels a certain way too. But there were allegations from that as far as what Ja said while he was there. And also, is that an appropriate sort of response? If Ja happens to find himself in the wrong places or doing the wrong things, certain people kind of seem to be around him each time. So there's something to be asked, I think, about the company that he keeps trying not to pass judgment. But I think it's very fair to ask the question. So it's not to take anything from Jalen. I love him. I also think that he is someone that is appropriate. I thought that he had some of the smartest takeaway comments from when this stuff initially happened. Mm -hmm. The fact that he basically said, I am, I was John Moran. There were some similarities there, but also needing to step back enough to, you can be rooting for someone in the sense that they just do well for themselves and that they take care of themselves. And I understand you wanting him to feel a comfort level with you, but it would be a difficult interview for a journalist, someone that was classically trained as a journalist without the playing background too. And without the fact that Jalen sees himself as someone that was in Josh's shoes before, but there were definitely some questions that I would have loved to see asked. Chris, we talked at the top about how you and I shared similar journeys as journalists or writers that leaned heavily on numbers and data and analytics and stuff. Mm -hmm. However, we are not the same person. When I walk into the Sloan conference, I feel like these are my people, right? These are the people that I went to college with and finance bros and the MIT mm. Sloan analytics conference. Sloan is the business school at MIT for those who don't know. Yeah. They look like me. This is very much a different experience for you, Chris, in using some of those tools or going walking to the Sloan conference it's not the same experience for me. So I'm curious with the Kendrick Perkins and the JJ Reddick conversation that happened on first take as someone who is black and covering the NBA in, in a way that is usually written using those tools by people who look like me. How did you receive that conversation between JJ and Kendrick Perkins? Well, first off, I'll start off by saying that you're absolutely right about the Sloan thing. Cause I went once or twice and have not been back in several years because it's, it, it starts to feel really I won't say isolating because, I mean, there aren't so, so many black reporters in journalism, period, let alone, you know, covering the NBA. But it did start to feel like not completely my crowd, even though a lot of people do similar stuff to what we write about. It's not unpleasant, but it's not overly comforting to me all the time to be there. The JJ Perk conversation made me uncomfortable. It was probably the best way to put it. First of all, the premise on which Perk was basing his comments on was off by enough numbers-wise, I think, to call it out. It's the facts! I can't remember how many times I've seen ESPN, like, open first take by, like, I don't know if they apologized, but they, like, had to correct the record, yeah. The statement that he made about, I think he said 80%. It was, like, in the low 60s of what percentage of it was white voters. I don't think they said it in the statement. They didn't say it, but I think people were rounding up the numbers. I saw Reddit threads that were trying to parse like whether people were of color or not, you know, based on the voters from last year is weird, but it was somewhere in the sixties might've been the low sixties. For the record, the league's official stance on that is that they do not ask voters to divulge their ethnic background. So they don't, this was Reddit people probably pulling up people's profile pictures and stuff, trying to figure <laughs> out what ethnicity they were and whatnot. But the MVP conversation has gotten really toxic in my opinion. And I think Joker, like, I think it takes away from him to reduce it to that. 
because the guy has put up ridiculous numbers. And to JJ's point, I tended to agree with him a little bit more on this, a lot more on this, frankly, just because it's like, well, first of all, if we're talking about what place a team finished in or something like that, they essentially had the same record. And we were looking at a situation where Jokic was playing without his best guys for essentially the whole season. And the idea that we also had Jerry West, he never won MVP and he finished in second more times than Embiid has. So we've had that happen before too. And that was at a time where the media- That happened before 1990, Chris. Yeah. First of all, the race is not over. And even in the last week, we've seen the dynamic of it shift where now they're they're co-favorites, Embiid and Jokic in this race. So I actually thought it was trending towards being over and the basketball gods- have kind of shifted things back. So I think it's still very much a a three-person race. I don't like how toxic the conversation has become. It doesn't mean it's unfair to at least ask questions about whether you want to look at the racial composition of the voters or anything else. I'm fine with that, but I, I don't like suggesting that me or other people in general like can't just reach a conclusion that is rooted in a guy playing historically great basketball at a more efficient level, producing more points per game through assists than Embiid does. If you want to argue that Embiid is a better defender, all day long, go ahead and do that. I think a lot of people would say that. I understand that Jokic has a lot of advanced metrics that people don't understand that I don't understand about how good he is or can be on defense. That's all fine. But I also think it's not an exact science as to how we reach this. People don't even have the same definition on what a most valuable player is or how we get there. It's a nebulous sort of thing to begin with and, and a difficult thing anyway. So I, I didn't like that conversation. And I think it kind of adds to a discourse that it used to be really fun to figure this stuff out. Yeah, you voted for Jokic last year. Did you feel this was fun to do the vote? It didn't feel as full of animosity last year as it does this year because of some of this stuff. But also, and I'm not the first one to say this, like the constant chime-ins from Daryl Morey and a lot of other people. I feel like I'm going in on Daryl between this and the Sloan Conference now. (laughs) We get it. You have your guy. Yeah. And you're going to support your guy. We got Drew Hanlon and all these other people. It's like, we get it. I don't know of anybody that doesn't think that Embiid's a great player. Most of us vote him second. It's not a crime to do that, particularly when Jokic has played more. Embiid started his career where we were just happy to see the guy play because he was hurt so often. Yeah, It feels like, and I might have written this at one point, like if he can just stay healthy and put up the numbers he's put up and have the on-court, off-court impact that he has from year to year, he's going to win an MVP. And then in like the last two years now, he's been healthy But Jokic has basically been the healthiest superstar player in the league for the last three years. Yeah, It's just, I mean, him and Giannis, and and, and I think Jokic has probably played more games than Giannis has. When you take all those things together, yes, Embiid has had MVP-worthy seasons, but he hasn't been healthier than the guy that's beaten him. And it's like, when it's one-to-one, of course you have to take into account how many games he played as compared to the guy that beat him out. Yeah. I also think that we don't talk about that often, but it's like, it's kind of an obvious thing. And if I were Embiid, I would feel like, well, damn, y'all told me if I just stayed healthy, I would win it. And like he has. So I understand both sides of it, but it it gets really frustrating to feel like it's going to be painted. You don't know ball or like, oh, you, you have a bias against him. And it's like, I picked Embiid as the preseason favorite to be the MVP. I'd love to see him get the award because I think he deserves it. But I also think that Jokic does. I also think that Giannis has. Giannis has a really good case to have won it for the last several years. Yeah, These are all guys that are going to be all-time greats when they finish. That's my favorite talking point is the people who weep for Giannis 
were the same people when he was winning it saying that James Harden should be winning it and all that guy does is dunk. I'm like, wait a second. Like, all of a sudden, now you guys have have a place in your heart for Giannis Antetokounmpo? Yeah, man. The conversation shifts when you win a title, though. Yeah. Let Embiid win a title this year and not win MVP? Oh, my God. Yeah. We will never hear the end of it if he doesn't win MVP this year and he wins a title. I think what's interesting to me is, and I'm joking about, like, the finance bros at, at Sloan and that they're one of us or one of me like I look at myself and I see them but there is a conversation to be had Kendrick Perkins and JJ Redick I think they regret not being able to have this nuanced conversation there's a middle point between race has no impact on perception or basketball that race is zero impact and then that all the voters are racist there is a place in between that we can have a discussion about exactly racial perceptions or racial bias there should be a conversation about what is the makeup of what it takes to become an analytics writer in the nba because mm. for you chris a writer staffer to become an analytics anything in the nba good point that's something that i talked about with michael wilbon where he wrote maybe three or four years ago something about analytics is a way to segregate away an additional barrier to black people yep i remember that piece because black people aren't in analytics and i said michael you think all these guys that are engineering majors and math majors and statistics that are black don't like sports isn't it a little too convenient, don't you think, that like, oh, only white people who are good at math like sports. The black people who are good at math don't like sports or not good at math, one of the two. If we're talking about the same piece, I mean, he quoted Draymond in it. I remember Jamel and Michael Smith had me on. I think it was Numbers Never Lie at the time mm -hmm. when they were hosting that show. And it was so ironic to me that Michael, who I respect a great deal from Chicago, like me, and someone that I guess works at Northwestern like we both do very, very occasionally. He quoted Draymond, and I'm like, Draymond, even if he doesn't like analytics or doesn't see all the value in it, he has benefited from it as much as anybody. He's, I mean, he's also a very, he's a great, he's going to be a Hall of Famer, and we know yeah. that. But he's a guy that, looking at the traditional statistics. Points per game, yeah. He's a triple single. Yeah. But we know how great he is defensively, and there's all sorts of stuff captured by that. Also, if people had paid more attention to analytics, he would have been drafted higher. It's kind of ironic to pull out Draymond and quote him and basically be like, there's limited value in this stuff. People overvalue it. If we'd overvalued it the way we should have, Draymond would have made a lot more money the first few years of his career and probably wouldn't have benefited from the money that he's gotten in recent years because of knowing his value defensively, despite how poorly he shoots and some of the other stuff with him. So it's one of those things that there's all sorts of research done on STEM and giving more access to people of color and, and STEM related fields. I've studied political science. I, I, I hate math. I hate math. I teach at <laughs> Northwestern. They have me teach a data journalism class. And I was like, are you sure? Because they wanted me to teach the kids how to do all sorts of stuff with Excel. I'm like, I'm not good with Microsoft Excel. I'm not. I will tell them how to make use of numbers in their stories well, but I, I don't know how to do this stuff. Like I've, I, I avoided math classes in high school and in college. People make this stuff out to be more challenging to understand than it is sometimes. But I hope someday we come up with really, really great data to better understand defense, because I kind of feel like that's where, to me, if you were just asking my opinion on it, the Jokic conversation gets uncomfortable and he's not as athletic as these other guys that are up for the award. That's always the case. 
And he doesn't look as good on defense as the other guys up for this award. That's always the case. I think people feel like people are stuffing the pallet box with like these defensive numbers and metrics that people don't understand with Jokic. And it's like, okay, there are certain things that you can look at and certain things if you watch enough of his games and look at certain statistics and the kickballs and everything else that probably benefit him on defense that people don't understand that their defense that they run in Denver that people don't understand that he's covering a certain way. That's where I think the hole is in this conversation. And I think it's actually bigger than the conversation about race. I think it's more about metrics like VORP and stuff like that, that a lot of us, even people that use the numbers, don't necessarily understand what they mean. I wish that there were more defensive metrics, and there are, but they're not clear to most people like what they mean and how they're even configured. Are the Knicks going to win the championship? No, (laughs) not this year. I think that they could give teams a real scare. And they've played really, really well against Boston this year. But I'd be surprised they came out of the conference, let alone if they won a championship. What about one round? Can they win one round? Yeah. Two rounds? Oh, I think they could potentially win two rounds. Whoa, you heard it here first. That's the positivity (laughs) I like to hear. Let's go. I think they could. I I think it would depend on matchups. I think that they would probably need some heroics from somebody to do it. But that team, I wouldn't want to play them. I'll put it that way. I really... They're physical now. They've got offense. They've got defense. They've got some guys. It's not all on Randall's shoulders. He looked like a deer in the headlights a little bit in that Hawks series. I could see them winning a round for sure. And two, like I wouldn't be stunned if they did that. You heard it here first. Knicks are winning the title from Chris Herring. (laughs) Conference finals. Conference finals. The author of Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks Sports Illustrated Zone. Wrote an excellent column if you haven't read it yet on John Morant. Thank you so much for spending a lot of time with us. I apologize for keeping you long, but I do think these conversations are probably better suited than like a 15 second soundbite that gets on Twitter. So thank you for spending that deep dive with us. I appreciate seeing you guys and appreciate you guys having me on with you. You guys take care. taking off my jersey here and handing it to Mays and he's just acting like Kyrie where he's like I don't want this after all your internet issues this episode I don't want this I have a lot of thoughts about the whole jersey exchange process Mm -hmm. is there any sort of pre-negotiation going on oh that me and you are gonna trade jerseys no like that's the whole thing in soccer it started with if you try to stand next to the star player on the other team yeah so the game's over like well i guess oh i guess we're (laughs) already here i mean yeah it should be players of comparable skill levels Right. Or have a backstory, right? Like former teammates in college or former teammates in the NBA. I got one. You don't get to do it unless you're about to retire. So Dwayne Wade did it very famously. All 82, well, as many games as he played in, in his last season. I think that's the only way. If you're Dylan Brooks, no, you don't get to trade jerseys. Go out there and play. Because you got to see that guy. That's the whole point. You can't do that because I got to see you in like a couple weeks, maybe. 
No, 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 no. You only do it when this is your swan song. That's the rule. Kyrie had his third eye open. Dylan Brooks, only two eyes on that one. Yeah, I mean, he should have known. Dylan thought, oh, this is going to be cool. Kyrie, beloved NBA player, like one of the greats. I'm going to get his jersey. Sweet. Awesome. Here you go. Takes it off. And Kyrie's like, nah. What did he say after the game? He said, probably next time. (laughs) Tonight I was on to other things. I don't know what that meant. What do you mean? You didn't finish the thing. You took off your jersey. There's not enough sage in the world to cleanse Dylan Brooks' sweaty jersey. I don't know why you added sweaty. (laughs) Just Dylan Brooks' jersey. (laughs) Brand new from the store. Brand new, yeah. I'm all thrown off, man. I can't can't have a cogent thought because I'm, I'm feeling like my internet's not working. So disjointed. All right, well, let's just wrap there then, Tom. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.